0: Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboying Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. Last spring, the center organized a research roundtable about financial regulation, thinking through some of the questions that have been raised in recent years, much longer than that, about federal or federal financial regulators' role in our system of government their relationship to the presidency, Congress, the courts, and just their core missions that they themselves are focused on. Now, in case you hadn't noticed, uh, COVID happened, and we weren't able to meet in person when we did. So instead of doing an in-person research roundtable, the authors of these draft papers uh, circulated drafts online, and we had a really fruitful discussion uh, by email commenting on what turned out to be a really fascinating set of papers. Unfortunately, not only could we not have the roundtable in person, we couldn't have the conference in person either. And so instead of an in-person conference, I asked a couple of the authors to return for a conversation here on the podcast. Now, these two papers that we're about to discuss and another one are available on our website. On the Gray Center's website, there's a working paper series where you can find all the papers that have come out of Gray Center roundtables over the years. But in particular, the three focused on financial regulation. I'll introduce today's two papers in just a moment, but before I forget, I do want to mention the third paper. It's really fascinating. It's by Professor Brian Leibgober. He is a political scientist, and he wrote a paper titled, Meetings, Comments, and the Distributive Politics of Rulemaking, a look at some of the practices of rulemaking at the Federal Reserve, trying to analyze how to understand the Federal Reserve's own rulemaking process. It's a fascinating paper, and I really encourage you to take a look at it. And now, let me introduce the authors of the papers we'll be discussing today. The first is Peter Conti Brown. Peter is an assistant professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He's a non-resident fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. Uh, He authored the book, The Power and Independence of the Federal Reserve. It came out in 2016. It's absolutely fascinating. I really encourage you to take a look. It's really indispensable for anybody who wants to really understand the Federal Reserve's role in American history, politics, and, and governance. He's now at work at I work on two books. The first is a history of bank supervision in the United States from the Civil War to Dodd-Frank. And the second is a comprehensive political and institutional history of the United States Federal Reserve System. And the paper that he authored for this roundtable, which we'll be discussing in a little bit, is titled The Problem of Federal Reserve Governance, Law, Politics, and History. Peter, welcome. Thanks so much, Adam. Such a
1: pleasure to be with you.
0: And our second author today is Lev Manand. Lev is an academic fellow, a lecturer in law, a postdoctoral research scholar at Columbia Law School. He's written widely on financial regulation, money and banking, central banking, and more. And he comes to this with the experience of having worked in the regulatory system himself. He was a senior advisor to the Deputy Secretary of the Treasury from 2015 to 2016, and a senior advisor to the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for financial institutions from 2014 to 2015. So all of this in the immediate aftermath and initial implementation of Dodd-Frank, he also worked as an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in the Bank Supervision Group. And While he was there, he was seconded to the Financial Stability Oversight Council, where he helped prepare the council's first financial stability report. And his paper, which we're going to discuss first today, is titled, Why Supervise Banks? The Foundations of the American Monetary Settlement. Lev, welcome.
2: Thank you so much, Ed. I'm great to be here.
0: So, these are two fascinating papers, and they really are interesting when read uh, together. So, like I said, we'll start with Lev. We'll talk about his paper for a little bit, and Peter will jump in as well, and then we'll change gears and then focus on Peter's paper. Uh, Lev, your paper is titled The Foundations of the American Monetary Settlement, so that's probably a good place to start. What is uh, the American Monetary Settlement? Thanks, Adam. So...
2: The American monetary settlement is uh, my terminology uh, for uh, an arrangement that was worked out in the mid-19th century in the United States for producing uh, the money supply, for issuing money. And the arrangement has been so successful in some respects that we don't even realize uh, that we have it, uh, that we've lost sight of many of its key pillars. Um, and it's 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 run into some trouble in recent years and um that i think has caused us to focus on it, uh once again uh, how, how money is made in this country and um and the paper is about one of the pillars uh, uh supervision bank supervision which is a distinct um form of
0: of government oversight of the of the banking system um let's let's turn to supervision in a second but first let's just focus on money uh Bankers and financial regulators and financial experts know what money is. Uh, Maybe our lay audience, when they're thinking of money, is thinking about the cash that's in their wallet or stuck in their couch somewhere. When you're talking about money in this paper, what do you mean?
2: Yeah. So one of the reasons why we've lost sight of the American monetary settlement is we've lost sight of who's making the money in this country and what, what money is. And it's true that the cash in your wallet is money, and it's an important Form of money, but it is much much less important than the balance in your bank account. Um, these are called deposits, deposit balances, and you treat that equivalently to the cash in your wallet. Um, but the reason you do that is because of a legal administrative process that allows those to be equivalent. Because the reality is, there is only around one and a half trillion of dollars de- of of cash in the world, um, and much of it is overseas. Uh, and much of it is in people's wallets, and a very small amount of it is in banks. Meanwhile, banks have $15 trillion of deposit balances. And so when you log on to Bank of America and you see your account balance, and it says you have, hopefully, a positive balance, $600. Um, Bank of America does not have $600. <laughs> uh, they, it, it, it's, it's a ledger entry. And the thing is that you use the Bank of America ledger entry to do most of your transactions, especially your large transactions. And for American businesses, almost all of your transactions. So there are cash transactions in the economy, but by far the most important transactions in the economy are settled using bank account balances. You move the deposits move from one bank account ledger to another bank account ledger. And that's why you don't actually need Um, more cash in the economy because the money that people use to conduct most of their business, most of their transactions is created by banks. And so if you, if you recognize that we have multiple types of money in the system and that actually the more important type of money is created by banks, then you realize that banks are doing something very special, very important in the economy. They're creating the, the means of payment by
0: which we
2: all rely on every day to to conduct our most important transactions.
0: You mentioned bank supervision, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But just to clue readers in on why this paper is so fascinating and so important, uh, Professor Manon, what he's done here is focused on a regulatory tool of bank supervision, about which there's many, many theories about what it is and where it comes from. And he sketches them out in the first part of his paper. But then he presents an alternative theory of what banking supervision is all about, rooting it all the way back into American history. And the point of this is to completely reframe people's understandings about what it is, what sort of power it is that the bank regulators are wielding and what kind of power it is that the banks themselves are wielding. And his project here is to, when I say reframe, I don't mean create a new understanding of it was to bring his audience back to uh, what he's researched and discovered to, to be the original understanding of the power of banks, power of bankers, and the power of bank regulators. Lev, have I have I done justice to your
2: argument? Yeah, and, and let me answer your earlier question more specifically about what the American monetary settlement is and tie it into what you just said and then what we just talked about with money, right? So, the statutory framework we have for money and banking, the paper is really trying to bring to life um the design and the reasons for that framework, and in particular the reasons for creating these powerful government agencies to supervise banks. And what it what it what it finds when it looks back um, is that there was a distinct uh political economy at work in the creation of the money supply in America. And there was an earlier model that was attempted. The First Bank of the United States, the Second Bank of the United States, are the flagship of that earlier model that involved delegating the power to expand the money supply to privately owned and controlled banks uh, that were monopolistic. They were, were they are very stable because they were like they were like a government central bank, except they were controlled by private actors, um, and those banks were. Separated out from the rest of commerce to prevent them from being overmighty citizens, to prevent them from being too powerful. Um, uh, but nonetheless, uh, Americans didn't like the amount of power that concentrated in the hands of 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 these parastatal uh, monopolistic banking enterprises, and so America tried something unprecedented in the history of money making. It um, opened up banking to all. It created an open access monetary system where agencies would administratively charter banks as opposed to legislatures, which previously had been involved in chartering banks only. A- administrative chartering of banks. And in order to make this system work with lots of little banks that anybody could um, apply to get a charter to run a bank, in order to make that system work, um, the government governments found they needed to have officials who were full-time uh special technocratic um experts who oversaw uh the banks and made sure that they were following the rules um and that they were hewing to the public purpose for which they were created and so Uh, there there are, in my mind, four main pillars of what emerged as sort of the American monetary settlement, how money would be made in America. Delegation, which was part of the original design of the Bank of the United States, right? Banks are still owned and controlled by by private shareholders, not by the government. Uh, Separation, and this pillar has eroded somewhat but banks are not supposed to be involved in other commerce that's about protecting the liberty of the rest of the commercial sphere from unfair competition from banks which have this special power to augment the money supply to to issue money uh so separation that's also from the original uh arrangement and we've retained that and then two new two new innovations that were distinctly american that have gone global in 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 the, in the uh, in the aftermath open access um, a very diffused banking system with lots of banks. Lots of people are able to exercise these powers. And supervision. The government's going to keep a close eye on you to make sure that the system is working. And um, today, we look at supervision and we say, this is odd. Um, these guys are, uh, almost never in court. They have so much power over the bank. Everything is worked out informally. There's this iterative process. It's continuous oversight. This doesn't look like our normal APA type of, um, uh, administrative agency. And there's almost a fear. Oh, is this like, you know, is, is the administrative state getting bigger and bigger and bigger? And, and, you know, uh, will all the other agencies turn into bank supervision? And part of what the paper is showing is, no, um, uh, that's not at least what you see here. This actually predates all of that. This is a distinct form of governments that was created to deal with and tame the outsourcing of monetary expansion um, into the hands of private banks.
0: Yeah, there's a nice footnote along the way. I think right after the APA was enacted, you have a quote from Kenneth Culp Davis, uh, one of the founding fathers of modern administrative law, where he sort of laments that the APA didn't touch on supervision um, on bank supervision because it's so important. Just a couple more points on, on this history, um, and then we'll we'll move forward. But but you you have a couple of keystone moments along the way: 1838, and what the state of was it? I guess the state of New York did on bank chartering under Governor uh, Martin Van Buren. Then President Lincoln in 1863 with the federal government's sort of reconception of the role of banks in, in our system, uh, and then I guess 1933 that's FDR and um, the 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 FDIC and soon after that I suppose the Federal Reserve Act. But but at each of these points, and and the history as a whole, your point is that this is not instances of the federal government asserting new regulatory power over private conduct. Rather, you're saying that this is these are acts where the of the government, whether state or federal, delegating a sort of federal power into the private hands of banks, and as part of that, sort of um, uh, attaching to it this 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 more sort of nebulous form of of governance, um, the, the, the the supervision. We probably should describe what that is, but supervision instead of just sort of clear just relying exclusively on clear ex-ante rules up front. Is, is that a fair way of putting it? And, and yeah, can you see, exactly. say a word about the actual nuts and bolts of supervision? After yeah.
2: That? Yes. Let, let me, let me respond to the first part of your question. And then I'll, I'll say a, a few more words on supervision and maybe Peter could jump in here. He he's, he's uh deep, deep on the practice of supervision in a way uh, that few are. Um, so uh the, the Government is recruiting the private actors in they're giving them a franchise. This is not your your um, uh, prototypical uh, ideal typical administrative agency out there regulating private conduct in the world the The government is inviting private actors to come in sign up and get these special what were conceived of as being state powers the powers to augment the money supply to get this government franchise to do this and being subjected to ongoing government supervision is one of the terms and conditions, and it's a key term and condition. It's a term and condition that makes it politically palatable uh, for this arrangement to work and be durable over time. Um, and in the 19th century in particular, it was very contested, the outsourcing of this power. Um, even into the well into the 20th century, it was contested. And supervision was part of the way in which the government made it palatable to the people to to outsource this. And it was important to Roosevelt, and you mentioned Van Buren. Um, and so uh, part of what the paper is trying to do is to show that this, this, this distinctive form of government that we see in the banking space, it fits into a larger puzzle, uh, um, and that's the way to make sense of it. Um, in terms of what is supervision, um, what are its key distinguishing characteristics? Um, I would say it's an iterative process where the expectation is that the government and the banker are going to work out an amicable um, uh, resolution to concerns that the government might have about how the bank is being run without an expectation that that is going to be litigated in court. And that doesn't tend to result in final agency action. And in fact, if you end up in court, if a bank ends up in court, that's a sign something really, really wrong has happened. Whereas in, uh, in other agencies, litigation is, is relatively normal. Um, and, 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 and And an agency might pursue an action against a regulated entity, totally expecting to possibly end up in court. That should never happen in the banking context. That's not how the system is built to work. And it's built to be relatively collaborative. Part of the way that it is, uh achieves that is by giving the government huge statutory authorities, huge statutory powers um, that require the banks to sort of have the government's confidence in order to be able to do their business. And the Federal Reserve is a big part of that. And so we could uh, link into that later at some point, uh, potentially with Peter's paper, but the Federal Reserve is administering this system of banks, and so they need the confidence of agencies like the Federal Reserve to operate. And that's what allows this system to work instead of ending up in just, you know, everybody's always in court fighting fighting things over.
0: And we're, t- we're talking about the Fed, uh, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, and the FDIC primarily, primarily, right?
2: Yeah, those are our three main banking agencies. They split up primary day-to-day responsibility for supervising different parts of the banking system. The OCC was created first in 1863 as part of the National Bank Act, predating the Interstate Commerce Commission by, you know, over over a decade, uh, a couple decades. 1887 was when the ICC is born. Um, And so you have the OCC first. The Fed gets layered on top in 1913. um, And uh, we can talk more about that. And then the FDIC comes in during the Great Depression and uh, to extend and finally federalize much of the remaining parts of the state chartered banking system that had eluded federal regulation and supervision um, under the National Bank Act and the Federal Reserve Act.
0: Peter, you have the patience of a saint, and I appreciate you uh, letting us sort of uh, start to work our way through Lev's paper. And we'll return, Lev, in a little while to, to well, your, your concerns about sort of the decline of supervision. But Peter, we've already put a lot on the table, and I would love to hear your reactions to, to any of this so far and, and Lev's paper in general, given how much you've written on, on banking regulation and supervision and, and that you're continuing to write on bank supervision.
1: Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, Lev's paper is, uh, a really signal achievement, um, participating in a, in a, a relatively new but growing body of scholarship from economists and legal scholars and others, uh, trying to answer some of those epistemological questions, what supervision is, what it's, what it's for. Uh, and so Lev's the theory rooted in, in, in the monetary settlement, uh is is novel and interesting and anyone writing about it, myself and my co-author included, have to write through it. Now I have I have a, a very different theoretical uh approach um that is much less left to ideas of grand design and much more about institutional evolution. The name of my book with Sean Venata on the history on the history of banks revision is called The Banker's Thumb. This is the an allusion to Stephen Jay Gould Panda's thumb. And we see supervision not as part of a grand settlement of any kind, monetary or otherwise, but a part, a, a a set of institutional structures and reactions for purposes that have evolved over time, sometimes in reaction to critical junctures that alter the relationship and the divide between public and private in the financial system. Uh, and other times changed because of uh, no discernible critical juncture at all uh, in and following those kinds of of punctuated, uh, uh, equilibria in institutional change. Um, I think that, you know, have we, uh, our chapters of the, of the book, um, dealing with the 19th century, uh, our argument there is, is different from Lev's because although monetary facility and provision is the central legislative obsession, uh, the function of examiners evolves almost immediately from uh, verification of, we, we call this the currency view of the examination, uh, and toward instead fraud detection, uh, failure prevention, what we might call systemic risk management, uh, and and reputational management for both the examiners uh, and for the banks themselves. There's a major scandal where an examiner stole a bunch of money in the 1870s um, that was front page news for weeks throughout the country and this dramatically altered how examiners were uh, understood, compensated, trained, uh, and the like. And so then we started to see these epistemological challenges to what supervision should be. Is it management consulting? Is it more monetary policy, as LEB sees it? Is it a police function? Is it more as a fire warden to be on hand in case of emergency? Is it about uh, anti discrimination? Is it about the um, uh, about money laundering? And the answer is all of the above at different times. Uh, so now I'm picking some of of my work uh, that's in, in very close dialogue with Lev's, and so I don't see. I'm not convinced by the monetary settlement because I don't think anything is truly settled here. I think it's much more of an evolutionary process without a grand author or grand design. That said, I think the role of of examination, which is what uh, Liz mostly focused on in the 19th century, um, is, is deeply rooted, not just in what happens in New York um, under Van Buren, but also the way that both first and second banks of the United States also treated their correspondent banks, which is very much through an examination process. And even some of the wildcat banks that we saw in Michigan and elsewhere that were themselves subject to a similar kind of currency anchored examination process. And this uh, also, although in the United States, supervision starts to evolve much more broadly beyond examination, Uh, throughout the rest of the world, private or quasi-private central banks built on a Bank of England model uh, and informed by experimentation elsewhere is still doing that currency view until the what evolved to be a bank supervision apparatus starts to get exported in the post-war and especially from the 1970s onward. So that's, that's a, a little bit unfair because that's my, you know, admittedly idiosyncratic take from a different sort of theoretical school about supervision. Uh, and bottom line is that this, this paper is a pioneering one and is going to get cited uh, as it already has been by everybody working on some of these theoretical and epistemological questions about, about what supervision is. I just see less of a through line from 1863 than I think Lev does.
0: Lev, I, I don't presume that you you've, you've... You've seen, you know, the drafts of what Peter and his co-author are working on. So it's hard for me to ask you to sort of react to what he just put out there. But would you like to react to anything that he just put out there?
2: No, no, of course, I I would be happy to. This is not the first time Peter and I have discussed these issues. And so none of none of this is sort of news to me. uh, uh, You know, Peter and I, you know, Peter is looking in some sense from the bottom up and I'm looking from the top down. Uh, and so the statutes, the laws, they do have authors and those authors do have a design in mind and it's definitely contested. And so if you look, there's a great political history of this and there are movements on both sides. And, uh, if you, if you, if you trace things from the civil war period up through, up through the new deal period, you'll see that there's a consistent movement, um, Trying to make the creation of the money supply more public, for example, um, and that is uh, visible in the laws that get passed. If you if if you look at it from the from the bottom up, what the examiners are doing in the banks, they're confronting their day to day, and they're evolving their practices in response to the. The practical reality of being a government employee charged with a statutory mission. And so the perspective from, from the, from the institutional ground floor is going to be very different from the perspective of the, of the legislators. To the, to the monetary mission of supervision more generally, I would just say that the, the purpose of the statutory scheme um, and the broad supervisory powers is nicely encapsulated in the key statutory book uh, of much of what the banking agencies are authorized to do to remediate problems that they find, which is to address unsafe and unsound practices. And, and, and soundness is a monetary concept, and it speaks to what the problem is with, as Peter was saying, fraud at the bank, for example. Uh, The problem with fraud is it's going to jeopardize the equivalence that the government is trying to ensure between the money that the bank is creating, the bank's deposits, the bank's notes, um, and the gold and silver coins that are coming out of the U.S. Mint, which are a tiny fraction of the money supply. And in order for the economy to function properly, there needs to be maintained an equivalence over time and a competence over time that there's no difference between those metal coins that we only have a few of, or now uh, Federal Reserve notes, which we still only have a fraction of, and all of the money that's being produced by banks. And super supervisors are there to maintain that confidence. And that means um, superintending over things that could jeopardize the health and safety um, of the bank. Of course, at the same time, the, the franchisor view suggests, and I think this is um, I, I look forward to reading Peter's book because I expect that uh, it, it, will, it will illuminate a lot of this. The state uh, views occasionally banks as its instrumentalities and it uses them to uh, try to achieve various other ends that may not be related to just maintaining par between uh, bank deposits and, and stuff that comes out of the U.S. Mint and so there 's a fascinating institutional evolution in history of how the government has used its franchisor powers over banks throughout history to achieve to achieve various goals uh, through the monetary
0: system uh, Two quick notes then before we move on to peter 's paper um, first. Our audience, they might not know a lot about financial regulation and bank supervision, but if you're listening to the, this podcast, they probably know about delegation and non-delegation. And so that early premise in your paper that the federal government or state governments are in effect delegating some power to, to, to banks by chartering the banks, uh I'm sure more than a few administrative law geeks who have been listening this far said, wait a second. The Supreme Court said a long, long time ago in Carter Cole, uh Carter versus Carter Cole, that the government can't delegate Uh, government power to private hands. And, you know, the Supreme Court came close to that issue a few years ago in the Amtrak case, where they ended up concluding Amtrak isn't private. Um, I suppose you're, uh, let me me guess. Uh, Well, no, let me just put it to you. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, what you've identified in conflict with those cases?
2: So I'm very interested in this question, and it's something that's on my back burner for further investigation, but I'll just say, Uh, for now, that it's always struck me about the modern discourse about the delegation, non-delegation doctrine, and also the structure of the administrative state and the presidency, that there's a curious myopia about the banking system. Remember, they created the first bank of the United States way back, right with the first Congress in 1791. And it was extremely controversial. And it was extremely controversial because it does implicate these issues. And um it uh it, it was very much understood back then what they were doing uh which was uh giving you know uh very important power over the economy to a small group of private shareholders and there was a concern that was inconsistent with american liberty and american self-government and uh it was understood that uh ultimately, there was a consensus that it was permissible, and the reasons for that are i think manifold and uh, uh probably necessitate another podcast but i would say uh, I would say one key piece um is that this was this was part of the british um this was part of the british arrangement, and so there are really deep roots here in In involving private actors in the creation of money goes goes far back and um, it's it's so embedded now that we've lost sight of it that it's not even in the discourse that you that you can have a whole conversation about delegation without even realizing that we've delegated this quintessential sovereign prerogative to to private parties now. Uh, they're not just running willy nilly around with it. They are extremely constrained. The modern banking system is extremely constrained. Part of the it, part of the brilliance of the American design of open access and and having thousands of banks is they all constrain each other, and so it's not like the Second Bank of the United States, where Nicholas Biddle was an extremely powerful man. we we've, we've 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 changed the system a lot since then, um, but. There are, there, there remains that underlying, uh, outsourcing, uh, relationship, uh, that I think has, uh, that, that, that has been missing from some of these other debates. And I think it would be, it would be, uh, very revealing and interesting to, uh, fuse, fuse these conversations back together sometime in the, in the coming years.
0: Now, before we move on to, to Peter, just one last question, and it's about what you worry about in terms of the, the decline of supervision. You frame your paper in terms of, of not just the history of supervision, but where it might go next. You're worried about uh, a turn away from supervision, trying to refashion bank regulators to look more like other regulators in terms of the formalities of rulemaking or adjudication. Why don't you say a brief word about that, and then we'll, we'll turn to Peter
2: yeah great great question so i got interested in all of this like many people today who write in this space um because of the global financial crisis in 2008 2009 and one of the things that struck me is if you look at the statute books the government has a huge amount of authority um and they weren't exercising a lot of it and that that, that was puzzling to me and i wrote a paper a few years back called too big to supervise that was trying to understand maybe what, what, what happened that caused the Federal Reserve and other agencies to basically disarm, unilaterally disarm in the run up to the 2008 financial crisis. Now there are other causes of the 2008 financial crisis besides the atrophy of, of bank supervision, but, but banks, the at, bank supervision atrophied and it, it's, it's curious why. And my, my take was, well, if you look, at, I went back and I read everything that was being said that they thought that, uh, that the banks had become too big to supervise. Uh, Alan Greenspan thought that they were too big to supervise in the traditional way. So he tried to set up different approaches for disciplining the banks that would rely on the market. And that's what the, the, the paper tells the story of that. Um, and what you see that, that, um, what you see in the last few years is a troubling uh, return of supervisory atrophy, of desupervision. And the end of this latest paper is trying to grapple with whether that is just a, some fluke or some ideological thing, or whether there is something to what Alan Greenspan was saying that large financial conglomerates which we never had in the United States before that emerged in the late nineteen nineties, that they are actually very difficult to supervise for a variety of political economy reasons. And that we are going to experience tussles over supervision and potential supervisory failure um in the future, insofar as we continue to have a banking system that is conglomerated in in, in the way that in the way that this one this one is.
0: Thanks again, Lev. And again, listeners, the title of the paper is Why Supervised Banks? The Foundations of the American Monetary Settlement. Uh, It's available on our website's uh, working paper series, and um, uh, it's forthcoming in the Vanderbilt Law Review. Peter, your own paper, a paper titled The Problem of Federal Reserve Governance, Law Politics and History, like Lev's paper, it looks backwards and it looks forwards. It traces the history of one particular institution of financial regulation um, and looks for uh, the need for reforms. And so we're focused on the the governors of the Federal Reserve System. Who are they?
1: Right, so the uh formerly called members of the Federal Reserve Board before nineteen thirty-five, now the governors of the uh Board of Governors, the Federal Reserve System after 1935, are appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate to perform on the on two overlapping committees. The first is the body, uh the government agency called the Board of Governors, uh, which holds the regulatory and supervisory authority of the Fed. Uh some emergency lending. And some monetary rules as well. Um, but together the Board of Governors and, uh, and the 12 Federal Reserve Banks form the Federal Open Market Committee. Uh, only 12 of the 19 have a vote at any given time. Now, the FOMC as the body, this is created in 1933, substantially altered in 1935, as the body that controls the nation's monetary policy. Um, it is uh, seen as, uh, kind of the metonym. Uh, when you say the Fed, you often mean the FOMC. Um, and so the governors, because they have this, they're the sole access point for our more formal administrative law friendly, uh, appointments, power, separations of powers type, uh, type issues. Uh, that's the mechanism of political accountability for the Fed. The Federal Reserve banks have, I, I say essentially no, but much more attenuated. Uh, accountability. And this has been one of the most important uh, and, and often debated issues in the history of the Federal Reserve System dating to 1913 uh, and continues to be through today. My paper, uh, I've written earlier um, a, another paper, uh, a couple of papers and uh, a lot of my book about trying to make sense of what the Federal Reserve Banks are uh, in the system. There's more more work to be done uh, to be sure on, on this uh, really important question. The Board of Governors, however, is the focus here. And the question really is uh do the board of do the governors function uh according to an original design? Answer is no. Um and, and what can be done about that, both from a cultural perspective, a regulatory perspective, and a legislative perspective.
0: And what was the original design and, and how did we get so far afield from it?
1: So the um the, the original design in 1913 is to recognize that uh, it's related to to Lev's paper here, uh, uh, too. The examination function, uh, which by 1913 had started to extend into more of a supervisory function, a variety of different things that uh, supervisors are doing besides examining, uh, most importantly, is, is pushing. It wasn't working well in part because there was no balance sheet to support them. So to support a guarantee that is offered by examination and supervision by the Comptroller in the late 19th century is is hollow because uh, a well-examined bank that, that then failed could be entered into conservatorship, but there was no counterparty uh, uh, in, from the government to make good on some of those assurances. Uh, and so the Federal Reserve System is created essentially in reaction to a series of very major financial crises, 1873, 1893, and 1907. And uh, the Federal Reserve system uh, is, is, is designed in reaction to these crises, but then also in reaction most proximately to uh a big scandal uh that is part of the antitrust anti-monopoly movement in nineteen twelve, the so-called money trust. And so the great fear uh was that uh, a a rebooted central bank um with, wouldn't, uh, in the classic, uh, Bank of the United States, Bank of England models would be something of a money trust. So there are a lot of ways that, a lot of legislative designs that were, uh, offered by National Reserve Association that would try to disperse some of that power more broadly, even while leaving it anchored in New York. Um, and the Federal Reserve System, especially after the money trust hearings and the election of Woodrow Wilson in 1912, uh, tries to square that circle. You want to have government accountability through a Federal Reserve Board in these, uh, members, uh, and then, uh, uh, in maintaining the decentralization and private, uh, franchisor in, in, in Led's, uh, conception, um, but, uh, is federally chartered Federal Reserve banks. Uh, one, one initial proposal is one in each state, then it gets down to 20, then it becomes eight to 12 in the original statute. And so it's about a mix, a mix of centralization versus decentralization, public versus private. But the capstone, to use Wilson's word, was this Federal Reserve Board. Uh, and it was meant to have supervisory authority over the Federal Reserve banks. And indeed, um, when we're talking about bank supervision in 1913, through the Fed, that supervisory authority is primarily board to reserve banks, not reserve banks, to member banks, um, although that changes almost immediately. Uh, And that set of relationships also starts to shift and collapse almost immediately for a variety of reasons.
0: So the Fed as an institution overall uh, strikes a balance between, as you mentioned, centralization and decentralization, public power and private power. Your paper is focused on some of the problems that have arisen in and around the board of governors problems of of vacancies uh, other problems of just how they go about their work. Could you maybe walk through a couple of the problems that you see um arising in and around the board of governors today let me uh Let me
1: jog through four <laughs> so I'll go a little bit quick through four problems. So one, as you mentioned, is vacancies. Until the George W. Bush era, the, um, despite some very sharp political disputes, including right uh, through Watergate, um, there was, uh, the Fed was highly politicized, but vacancies were not. So vacancies simply weren't pending for very long. There was near, uh, uh, when they had occurred, they were gener- generally filled. And a metric I use in the paper is determine, okay, on the 12, per, 12 voting members of the Federal uh, the federal Open Market Committee, five or Reserve Bank, seven are governors. How often, uh, during what percentage of time, do the governors have a numerical majority, six to five or seven to five? Uh, and the answer during the Trump administration is zero percent of the time. And before in the Obama administration, uh, that those numbers are incredibly small. So one of the graphs I have in the paper is just showing how it used to be 100% of the time through Republican and Democratic uh, appointments. So a good example is uh, in August 1974, days before Nixon resigns in complete disgrace, the Senate confirms one of his last Federal Reserve appointments. So these vacancies, crises, I trace that history. It's bipartisan. It is tit for tat. Um... My hope is that we get some sort of of pox. Uh, I don't know what the adjectival form of Biden would be if Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer and and, and Joe Biden can all gather and uh, and do something for this, I think this is a very grave crisis for the Fed's um, uh, governance and accountability. Second is salaries. Initially, the members of the Federal Reserve Board, the Reserve Banks, are paid more or less uh, um, equally. Uh, and then through inflation uh and and over time, because the reserve banks are are privately compensated, not subject to statute, the board of governors not, we see a gigantic divergence. Um, a third is FOMC participation. Here I mean speaking, not voting. And we see uh, another one of the graphs in the paper see that the Reserve Bank presidents beginning in the 2000s just started to overwhelm the process. Now, some members of the FOMC who read this paper. Told me I got it all wrong because the loudest voices in the room the are being presidents were the ones that people cared least about. Uh, and so it was just false, uh, false influence. Um, but I don't think that's true at all. Um, I think some of those loud voices use the FOMC meetings, um, and then use CNBC, uh, to, to really project some of their views. Now some of those views history has not been kind to. They're just making predictions that turn out to be flat wrong. But I think this is really important because the governor's declining. Uh, authority, uh, perhaps informed by a cultural tradition. They speak with one voice through the chair. Um, whereas the reserve banks each have their own pulpit, I think is, is problematic. Um, and then the last is the, the utter opacity. I'll, I'll do three instead of four. The la- the utter opacity around reserve bank, uh, appointment processes, presidential appointment processes. This is a highly statutory, uh, process, but there are big gaps in the statute. Uh, Dodd-Frank is the last major. Um, revision to the ways the Reserve Bank presidents would be appointed. Now bear in mind, these are some of the most powerful economic policy in the country. Um, uh, far more powerful than many, many of the TAS appointments that you'll see coming out of any administration. And we just don't have any good idea about how they're appointed. What the vetting looks like, who gets to participate. Um, when Dodd Frank said that the bankers who sit on the board of directors, the Reserve Banks can't vote, do they still get to choose their candidates and participate otherwise? We don't know. There's some, uh, uh, some evidence that they do, um, uh, and, and that becomes pretty problematic. Um, and so those are, those are what I think is the declining influence of the governors, uh, and the, uh, rising influence of the reserve banks, um, in ways that even if we take for granted that regional autonomy and regional identity, intellectual diversity are all important, which I, I genuinely do, um, I think it's uh, it's just it's it's deeply problematic from an accountability and governance perspective. Just how much uh, the governors appear to be uh, essentially in crisis, while the reserve banks uh, bank presidents do not.
0: And you propose a set of reforms, some of which uh, were sort of built into how you described, diagnosed the problems a moment ago. But you have cultural reforms, just in terms of the culture surrounding the vacancies and appointments regulatory reforms in terms of of the role of the non-voting uh, bank presidents on the, uh, the 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 FOMC um and also changing the as you just mentioned a, a moment ago changing the process for appointing bank presidents and then finally on legislation uh updating the salaries for the members of the board of governors but this last one i thought was really interesting you said shorter terms so that in effect there'll be longer terms, right? Yeah. They serve, they, they're appointed to 14-year 14 fourteen-year terms. Are you telling me they don't serve out a full 14 years? Right. I mean, as the
1: statute is written today, there's a loophole. You can technically serve 28 years uh, each governor because you can serve the unexpired term of a predecessor so long as there's such a stub term that's, uh, that's that long, you can serve it. Um, and, and nobody does. That's also been declining over time. I think driven in part by salary issues, um, uh, Post 2008, uh, there's a slight reversal here. I think the prestige of being on the Board of Governors has increased relative to what it was pre-2008. But yeah, I would like to see that. I'd like to see 10 years as uh, as an outside of, uh, uh, limit and uh, each of the leadership positions, two vice chairs and one chair, having a five-year term, it's renewable once. Uh, and then that is totally independent of when retirements occur such that we we eliminate the problem with the stub term, which is ironically designed in order to insulate the Fed from political pressure and is, in fact, pulled it much closer to the political processes. Yeah, the cultural stuff, I just kind of think that uh, non-voting members of committees just sort of pipe down, take out a pen, write some stuff if they've got thoughts, and then just let the deciders do the deciding. (laughs) I think if we did that, it would uh, allow the governors to participate more in the FOMC meetings. Um, you know, on the list of priorities and what to do with the Fed, I don't think anybody, myself included, rank this very high. Um, but I do think it's important to allow that deliberative body to be more effective. Paul Tucker's made the point, uh, sorry, Adam Posing has made the point, Paul Tucker, I think too, that the, um, monetary policy committee discussions at the Bank of England, which are much, much smaller, are also much, much more effective. Um, having not only the 19, uh, members and alternates of the FOMC in the room, uh, but also staffers, their designees, you'll have 60 people on the FOMC meetings. I think it's far too many. Um, so that's a cultural side. Uh, Uh, that would be a regulatory side. So just by regulation, uh, the board of governors and FOMC could simply say, uh, if you do not have a vote, then you don't have a microphone during those meetings. The cultural side is what I mentioned already. I would really love to see that piece be struck. I'd love it to be formal. I'd love it to be, um, or as formal as possible. I'd love it to reflect some sort of a joint bipartisan announcement. Um, and I'd love for those standards to just, um, uh, just look a little bit different, less, less highly politicized. Uh, and maybe that's pie in the sky, but we think that it is best served institutionally from the feds perspective and from Congress's perspective, um, to, to get out of these, uh, uh, these vacancy fights, uh, unilaterally presidents should absolutely nominate candidates quickly. They haven't been doing that. And, and indeed, Biden has an empty vacancy that he could name at any moment. And I think every day that he doesn't, uh, is a day lost. I think he should do it.
0: We're recording this in mid-February, by the way, for, for listeners. Uh, now we only have a moment left and we can't adjust justice to the, the paper. That's why people need to read it. I would have loved to have, to have talked a bit about one of the current bank presidents that you hold up as a sort of a, as an example of, of the way things are going well, which is Neil Kashkari of, is he Minneapolis? Yeah, Minneapolis. I just remember when he went and ran for governor of California years ago. Um, so he's so he's my
1: mixed example. He's not a good example necessarily. I think. Well, he I fares better than the,
0: he, he fares better than the, the, the president of the Bank of Richmond. Um, <laughs> um, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, Some people did
0: not like my harsh treatment of uh
1: <laughs> Ker. We'll, I'll, I'll just say, here, look, Keri, it gives us a great example of what is so weird about this process. Cash Carey is a Republican, former Goldman Sachs banker. He was tasked as a assistant secretary financial stability in the Bush administration, in charge of TARP. He then runs for, as a Republican politician, uh, office in California, he loses. Uh, he has no tie to Minnesota. And now he becomes one of the most powerful central bankers in the country. Uh, no a Democrat would have nominated him. He's a Republican. No Republican would have nominated him. He's too tied up with Goldman Sachs and the and, uh, and, uh, 2008 bailouts. Uh, now, to be fair, I know Kashgari is an incredibly intellectually diverse and provocative and interesting central banker. I am glad for America that he is a central banker on the FOMC. Uh, but the process that gets there, I think, is, uh, is deeply bizarre. And
0: as far as uh central bankers go uh neil cash Carey has a name worthy of a dickens novel um we only have about 60 seconds left left, left and i'm sorry to have kept you waiting do you have any uh reactions to the paper really briefly before we we wrap up
2: yeah dude, no no problem uh, it's, it's 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 a fa- fascinating paper i commend it to everybody there's really great empirical results in there and it raises all sorts of key issues in terms of Federal Reserve governance, I would, I would say, uh, I, one of the things that I wonder about, and I'm curious what Peter thinks about this, but we might not have time maybe for another podcast. The extent to which what we're seeing at the Fed, this sort of atrophy at the board level, um, is, um, is is just the same as what we've what we're seeing in some of our other critical federal government institutions or it's different. And whether this is an extension of the problem that the president and the Senate have had confirming judges, for example, over the last twenty years, um or whether there's something Fed specific um uh that, that has caused this. I I too think that the short tenure of governors is really a tragedy. And something should be done about it. And part of that needs to be, as Peter said, um, presidents uh, filling the slots. Uh, and you saw that, you know, th- there were a lot of vacancies at the end of the Obama administration on the federal judiciary. Uh, so it's not just the Fed. Uh, and, and part of it has to be presidents filling the slots with people that intend to serve out their terms. Yeah. Um, and I think is very important.
1: Can all, I, uh, I'm i the limiting factor here. I've got child care in uh, uh, like 60 seconds, but can I just <laughs> emphasize something that Lev just said? And this is yeah, counter-interest counter interest for all three of us who could be candidates to be members of the Board of Governors at some future date. Um, a not uh, uh, insubstantial number of candidates, from Republicans and Democrats, to be central bankers or academics— Virtually every university has a limit on leave for tenured faculty, around two years usually. Um, and we have seen tenured faculty members, who, uh, for whom huge amount of political capital is expended, leave at two years because they, very understandably, would like to resume their tenured positions. And I, if I were uh, President of the United States, haven't helped us all if that ever happened, but if I were President of the United States, I would require that any candidate... To be my central banker, to be my appointment to the, to the central bank, resign their tenure ahead of time. Uh, these two year, the two years is an impossibly short time, no matter your expertise to be a credible central banker. The 14 year term is meant for political insulation, but it's also a very important, uh, period of institutional apprenticeship and expertise gathering. Uh, and, and I think that these, these two year, um, terms are just, uh, uh, totally inappropriate. And so, uh, my first question—I think I would urge every Fed watcher's first question: If you see an academic appointed, you ask yourself, did they resign their tenure? Because if they didn't, you're looking at a two-year central banker.
0: Well, once again, before we go, I do want to remind our listeners about the third paper that came out of this roundtable. It's by Brian Leibgober of the uh, the Department of Political Science at Yale, titled Meetings, Comments, and the Distributive Politics of Rulemaking, focused on the Fed. You can find that on the Gray Center's uh, working paper series, along with the two papers we've been discussing today. The Problem of Federal Reserve Governance, Law, Politics, and History by Peter Connie Brown, and Why Supervised Banks, the Foundations of the American Monetary Settlement by Lev Benand. Peter, Lev, thank you so much. Great. And in addition to thanking our authors, uh, thanks to our audience for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Gray Matters.